Thank you for listening to this Lunchtime Talk, produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. In this live recording, senior curator Julie Robinson discusses works by Picasso and Rembrandt in the exhibition Picasso, the Vollard Suite. Welcome everybody, please come in. Um, for those of you that don't know me, uh, my name is Julie Robinson. I'm the senior curator of prints, drawings and photographs at the gallery. And today I'm going to be talking about uh, the newest Rembrandt acquisition to the gallery, to enter the gallery's collection, which is this self-portrait leaning on a stone sill from 1639. Now this work was acquired through the generosity of donors at the annual Collectors Club event, not this year, but in 2017. However, this is the first time it's been on display at the gallery and it probably seems very intriguing to you that it's on display in the middle of a Picasso exhibition. But um, I'll explain more about that later, the connection between Picasso and Rembrandt, but I wanted to first really focus in on this extraordinary portrait. I think Rembrandt is an artist that doesn't need much introduction. He is you know, regarded as one of the most significant artists in the European art tradition. He, of course, worked in the Netherlands in the 17th century, which was, is now known as the Golden Age of Dutch art, where the arts and culture flourished uh, a very prosperous time in the Netherlands. He, he, just to briefly tell you his life, he was born in 1606 in Leiden and um, grew up there and in that town. And then in 1631, he was drawn to Amsterdam, where there was a lot more um, activity going on and he lived there for the rest of his life until his death in 1669. Rembrandt is known to us both as a painter and a printmaker, and he, these are sort of of equal standing in his career, and um, his reputation rests equally today on, in either of these two media for his paintings or for his prints, because he was very passionate about printmaking he um, worked on uh, etchings uh, right throughout his career and, and dry points, and he made some 300 in total, so that's a significant amount of works. The type of printmaking he did prefer was etching, so that is um, a technique that for him was very close to the technique of drawing, and he loved drawing as well, because with etching you, he could uh, draw, he used a copper plate, he covered it in an etching ground and he could draw with the needle through the ground and those lines could be quite free and spontaneous and when they were etched, they created the beautiful um, lines that you find in the um, prints. And really, his name is um, synonymous with etching. He, before Rembrandt, I guess the main printmaking method was engraving. It was a much... Uh, more formal method, you had to uh, work harder to um, create tone, it was a very controlled method and there's a sort of staticness to a lot of engravings. But Rembrandt was the artist who really took etching, this, this sort of not really, uh, not really well known medium and he um, explored its full potential and he experimented widely. So th this is where, you know, Anyone who thinks about etching, the epitome of etching is Rembrandt. And this work is actually one of his most esteemed etchings. 
it is a self-portrait of the artist at the age of 33. Um, and it taps into one of the key uh, subjects in his work, which was portraiture. And that crossed over all the media, so paintings, drawings, and prints. And you might know, you know, in his painting career, for instance, he was known for his paintings of not just <coughs> single individuals that might be commissioned, the merchants in Amsterdam, but also these very innovative group portraits, like um, uh, the two most uh, well-known examples, I guess, are the anatomy lesson of Dr. Tulp, which was 1632, and of course, the night watch from 1642. This self-portrait comes in between these two famous paintings. But these portraits I was talking about are portraits of others. What was extraordinary too about his portraiture career was the fact that he explored self-portraiture. This was quite a novel thing in the 17th century, particularly to the extent that he explored it. Um, the great art historian Kenneth Clark said, uh, of Rembrandt, that he is, with the possible exception of Van Gogh, the only artist who has made the self-portrait a major means of artis artistic expression. And he is absolutely the only one who has turned self-portraiture into an autobiography. And we know that about, in his paintings, about 10% uh, of those are self-portraits. And in his etchings, he made about, well, I guess it's a similar statistic, he made about 32 self-portrait etchings. And this one, as I said, is made at the height of his career. Uh, it's in between his two famous uh, group portraits. He's, he's Amsterdam's leading artist, and I think we will see that. We see that in the work. So his self-portraits do mirror his life. Um, they are fascinating when you look at them and you, they're, they're all dated. So you can see the way he represents himself, represents um, his changing fortunes and status throughout his career. So there's a great example here. Maybe Annika has Annika, no. I'll just pass this one around in a moment, but these are sort of roughly to scale, okay? These three portraits, self-portrait prints are from 1630, this one in the middle, and 1648. So you can see from the early self-portraits, they were created uh, when he was still living in Leiden, and they were quite small. And in, they they've been described as studies in self-discovery, beginning to understand himself, but often they were more like character studies, so understanding ex expressions and um, the uh, facial features, very small studies like this. And his later self-portraits from the late 1640s onwards show him as um, circumspect and world-weary, and it's interesting that at that time he was struggling both emotionally and financially. Um, his, his wife, Saskia, had died in 1642 and um, that, you, you know, was his emotional um, distress for many years. But at the same time he had over-borrowed um, or borrowed a lot of money and couldn't 
uh, was had faced with a lot of debts uh, throughout the late 40s and into the 1650, uh, 1650s, um, to the point that uh, he became, you know, declared bankrupt, uh, and his house and contents were put up for, so for sale in 1657. So he achieved great fortune and fame, but then uh, went into decline in the last decades of his life. But the middle period that of his self-portraiture, and I'll pass this one around now so I don't have to hold it, um, reflects his, suc his success and his sense of self-confidence in the world. Um, at this time, 1639, he had a very busy studio. He was producing paintings. He was producing prints. He had a number of pupils. His works were known beyond uh, the Netherlands. They were known in Italy, for instance, and England. And at this time, he, just that year, he had moved into a large and expensive house on the Breerstraat, where he lived with his wife, Saskia, who was at that time pregnant. So everything was going well for him at that time. That house on the Breerstraat is still the, the house where the Rembrandt House Museum is in uh, Amsterdam today. So of the self-portraits from this period, this is the, the most significant. And it's one that you just uh, never tire of looking at because he's looking out at you with the, you know, equal, equaling your gaze. It's a very direct, um, unflinching gaze. And he exudes his sense of self-assurance, I think, in this work. He has left the background of the print um, blank, which gives that, uh, a perhaps doesn't anchor it in any particular time or place, but at the same time focuses the attention on him. And the sense of immediacy and proximity you have to Rembrandt in this uh, portrait is heightened by the way, this illusionistic thing where he seems to, he's leaning on this edge and his sleeve seems to come out past the picture plane. He's entering your space. The other notable thing about this work is that he's dressed himself as a Renaissance man. So he's not wearing uh, Dutch clothing of the day because you think of the Dutch portraits with all the stiff white collars and frilled collars and lace collars, but instead he's wearing Renaissance clothes from an earlier period. And he's used the etching to actually capture all this sense of fur and um, uh, sumptuous fabrics with the etching needle, very delicate lines. It's also notable for the way his beret is worn on this, um, quite an angle, uh, adds a little bit of drama there, and his long flowing hair. This was a, a short-lived fashion at that time to have um, long hair, but um, by 1640, the church elders had um, began to denounce long hair as a sin, but, you know, he's, he had, had it there for a while in his portrait. Um, the fact that Rembrandt looks like a Renaissance man is not accidental because in this work he was actually measuring himself up against some of uh, the uh, Renaissance artists that he was aware of, his artistic predecessors, if you like. 
And in particular, he was directly inspired by two uh, amazing uh, Renaissance portraits that he saw in Amsterdam that very year, 1639. Now, is anyone... And I'll show you them here. So, um, the first one here is this portrait by Titian, which is now in the National Gallery London. And that was in the collection of an Amsterdam, uh, well, in an Amsterdam private collection, one that Rembrandt knew, and uh, the collectors owned Rembrandt paintings. So Rembrandt would have seen that there. Um, and this one on the right is by Raphael. And um, I'll just pop it down for a moment. That actually came up for auction in 1639 in Amsterdam. So Rembrandt went to the auction and what you see down here is the little sketch drawing he made at the auction where he was um, recording that painting and also the notes on the side uh, point out the extraordinary price that it um, received at auction. So it went for 3,500 guilders, which um, would be 10 times what Rembrandt could um, ask for a portrait at that time, for a very modest portrait. So it was extraordinary. And he's documented that in the, um, in the margins. But you can see how it has, this little drawing has a relationship to this painting, but it also, especially in the head, is starting to um, give him the idea for his self-portrait. And when you look closely at these two, so his self-portrait seems to combine elements of both of these paintings. Here you've got the sleeve, of course, but here it's the beret and this upturned collar and, and this with this um, parapet as well. Um, I could, can pass that round or we'll, if you want, yeah. Um, Now, further to this, Rembrandt, with that print, followed up by making his own self-portrait painting the following year. I haven't got it on the board. But you can see that. It's now in the National Gallery London. So, with this print, it's the um, bridge between these two Renaissance paintings and then his own um, painting in the National Gallery. But interestingly, it's the print, his self-portrait, that can pass around too. Oh, I just would say that notice in the, the portrait from 16, this is 1640, short hair. <laughs> <laughs> had it cut. Anyway. Yes. Um, it's, it's this print that has become perhaps more well-known than his painting of 1640, probably because prints are multiples and could be spread far and wide. Um, having said that, today this is regarded as a very scarce Rembrandt print. Uh, the uh, authorities on Rembrandt say there would be, they categorise very scarce as having no more than 75 images left in existence. And we know that this is the 68th to be in a public collection. So there are 68 in public collections. Perhaps there are a few more in private collections, it's not known but it's, it's uh, very rare, so we were very pleased to get it for the collection. Now, 
in terms of its placement in this exhibition, um, I've just spent time explaining how Rembrandt in this work was measuring himself up against previous artists um, and thinking about his place in history. Well, P Picasso in this suite, the Vollard suite, also uh, starts thinking about Rembrandt and um, considering his work, because it, it was you know, this whole suite of etchings, it was the high point of Picasso's etching career, and of course he thinks of Rembrandt. And so there's a number of works here on this wall where images of Rembrandt come into Picasso's plates. And he talks about it, uh, it starts off actually down here, with this plate and this plate, which were made on the 27th of January in 1934. And he was talking about this plate in particular, to start with, where the uh, varnish had cracked and he thought the plate was ruined. Uh, and then he thought, well, what does it matter? Uh, I'll, actually, I'll read his exact quote. He says, I said to myself, it's spoiled. I'll just do any old thing on it. And I began to scrawl. Actually, so Rembrandt's here, by the way. Um, what came out was Rembrandt. I began to like it and I kept on. I even did another one with his turban, his furs and his eye. His elephant's eye, you know. Now I'm going on with the plate to see if I can get blacks like his. You don't get them in the first try. So this plate here, which was... Um, about to be ruined, he just started doodling around on it and this face appeared and it obviously reminded him of Rembrandt. It's quite a um, caricature of Rembrandt in some ways. It doesn't relate to any particular portrait because it was coming out of Picasso's imagination and perception of Rembrandt self-portraits. So it does have a rather bulbous nose, puffy face and but the curly hair. Um, and then it becomes quite a, a, a dense plate where he's trying then to equal what Rembrandt did because uh, in Rembrandt's late prints of the 19, late 1940s and into the 1950s, Rembrandt got in, incredibly dark and tonal in his prints and he would rework and rework plates and get this, these wonderful rich dark blacks. I'm not sure that Picasso's got there but that's what he was aiming to do. And then, of course, here is a more direct and very recognisable image of Rembrandt. And just in a few other works that are on this wall, the image of Rembrandt comes in again and again. So it seemed appropriate here to include this self-portrait among these works. But, you know, that seems like a very sort of amusing element, but Picasso really was seriously interested in Rembrandt and... In another work from this series, you'll see, uh, I have to see greater connection. It's this fawn um, looking, observing the sleeping woman. This one at the bottom is Picasso. Sorry. It's on the wall in there. And on the wall too, you will see this work by Karachi that is in our collection. And what we see here in between is Rembrandt. So when Picasso made this print, he was thinking back to Rembrandt's work here and Rembrandt in turn was thinking back to Karachi. So there's um, 
worth passing that round to see that inspiration flowing through in other work. So Rembrandt's presence is beyond just um, these few portraits of Rembrandt's. It was conscious in Picasso's mind um, through a number of plates. The image of the fawn is the last print that he made in the Vollard suite. It was the closing print. It's quite a large print and um, I think it's probably appropriate that it is one that uh, is inspired by Rembrandt. Okay, thank you everyone. <laughs> <laughs>